Um, if you have a Bible, open it to Luke 16. Uh, we're starting verse 19, going through verse 31. If this is your first time with us, uh, we've, we've strapped on our galoshes and been wading through Luke 15 through 18 since about mid-March. And uh, excited about this this morning. Luke 16, 19 through 31. Let me read this for us. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even if the, do- even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In other words, in heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, or hell, being in torment, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, fathers, to send him, Lazarus, that is, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You prayed to your Father in John 17. You prayed about your disciples. You said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God, I pray this morning that you would use your word to sanctify us, to make us holy, to grow us, even when it might be hard to hear. Lord, we love you. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. When you preach through the Bible, sort of according to the way God has set it up, right? Book by book, passage by passage, verse by verse. You can't avoid certain topics. Even when those topics land on holidays. (laughs) Such as this one. This multi-layered parable we have before us uh, that Jesus gives us, we could focus on one of three layers to it. Focus on stewardship, the relationship between wealth and one's heart. Right? We could focus on uh, hell. We could also focus on the sufficiency of the Old Testament to tell us about Jesus. There are three layers going on here in this passage, but having already talked about money, if you remember a couple weeks ago, at the beginning of Luke 16, and given how briefly Jesus touches on uh, the Old Testament here, the Spirit began to make it pretty clear to me earlier in this week that the winner 
of the topic sweepstakes is ding 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 hell all right yes so the sermon title this morning is i thought god is good so what's the deal with hell I was sitting back this week thinking about Mother's Day and imagining all the potential implications of preaching this sermon. And here's what I envision. Later today or this week, uh, a fellow mom, which is one of our moms in attendance this morning, happy Mother's Day, right? Hey, happy Mother's Day. Talking at the store, maybe you're you know, outside on your street or talking on Skype, whatever it is. Did you go to church today or did you go to church on Sunday? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, what was the sermon on? Well, oh, our church was about Mary treasuring up all the things her son Jesus did and pondering them in her heart. What about your church? Oh, you know, hell. <laughs> but I got a carnation. <laughs> Lovely. Yes. Oh, welcome to Sunrise Community Church, right? Where next week we will most likely not be preaching on hell. So, uh, but but the fact is this: Jesus, in all of his parables, he tells forty parables. Two thirds of them have hell or divine judgment as their focus. That two thirds have hell or divine judgment as their focus of all the parables, the stories Jesus tells. Clearly, Jesus wanted us to do some thinking about hell in this issue. In a nutshell this morning, if you remember nothing else, remember this is kind of a sermon in a nutshell. Hell is one of God's good creations. And the occasional thinking about it, meditating on it, can inspire honesty, contentment, and thanksgiving. And I realize this might be very counterintuitive for most of us. It is for me. And I'm not saying hell is a good place to go if you're going to it. Or someone you know is going to it. And it's not a good destination, final destination for others. In fact, God calls us to pray for people. If someone has treated us like garbage throughout our lives or treated other people like garbage throughout our lives in all seriousness, we are called to pray for that person. That God would touch their heart and change them and put them on a different path. My hope is that... Some piece of the sermon sticks with you to remind you of God's great goodness. Great goodness, even in establishing hell. I'm going to give you three reasons why the existence of hell, as long as you are not in it, can be good. As crazy as that sounds. And thus, God is good. We'll spend most of our time with these three reasons. We'll spend most of our time on this first reason, and the latter two will build off of it. Hell is good. It's hard to even say that. Hell, hell is good because it reveals eternal to- tombstones. Hell is good because it reveals eternal tombstones. Do you remember that question that was, that was later used and abused by a frozen pizza commercial of all things? Uh, what do you want on your tombstone? Right? What do you want written on your tombstone? Or what would you want written about you in an obituary? I remember having to ask this, answer this question like in, a, in an English literature high school class, right? And they asked me, you know, what would you want written on your obituary? It was hard, that was hard enough for a teenager, but then I had to write it based on the book Lord of the Flies. I was like, what? I don't understand. <laughs> That's pretty heavy. <laughs> one, of, one of the great servants in our church, one of the great women of our church, who's a tremendous servant, served our church greatly, Wanda Rolfe, had her obituary come out a couple weeks ago. Wanda isn't with us today. 
because she's on vacation. <laughs> she's on vacation, people. That's what this could sell that. Wanda explained that a lot of people in her hometown probably think she's passed away because a woman of her same name, Wanda Dixon, had her obituary come out in the Savannah newspaper. Uh, Dixon is our Wanda's maiden name. So a lot of people may have think she passed away. So I asked Wanda if she'd actually read her imposter's obituary. And she said she hadn't. And I said, you've got to get your hands on that. So well, why? You know, it's not about me. I just... Like, well, don't you want to know what people are saying about you now that you're dead? <laughs> well, I'm not dead. I was like, yeah, but still, you, want, you should know. Well, uh, while she did not, uh, I did. This is the kind of hard-hitting research that your pastor does when preparing sermons. It turns out that it was a pretty short and not really particularly flattering obituary. In fact, the woman had a daughter named George. And I thought, wow, you might want to wait, wait for a different one, Wanda. But... In any case, it's kind of crazy that I looked that up. But it might take time, but all of us have a goal or aspiration of life. It might take time to think about it. We have a goal or aspiration in life that we want to fulfill. We hope one day is etched in a tombstone or printed out in our obituary. Right? Something that's described about the way we lived our life. In this story that Jesus tells, we have a man who's shown his tombstone, if you will, from a reverse angle. He's shown it in the rearview mirror from the other side of death. Verses 23 through 25. Read this with me, if you would. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham far off, Lazarus at his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things. In the case of the rich man, he built his life on money. His legacy was money. This was his legacy. This was his tombstone. Friends, the point of this parable is not that generosity or good works will get us into heaven. But that lifelong, misplaced trust will land us in hell. Lifelong, misplaced trust will land us in hell. This is why the focus of the parable isn't on Lazarus, is it? The focus on this person focus is on this person simply called the rich man. So let's look at him a little bit. Jesus is trying to show us that this man's misplaced trust in his own wealth isn't a brief mistake or a bad you know, three-month binge with a MasterCard, but a lifelong pursuit. Money is a lifelong pursuit with him. Jesus is painting for us a stark picture of misplaced trust. And he starts his painting with something immediately unique about this parable. There's something that's extremely unique about this parable. It's the only parable in which a character, in this case a poor man, receives a proper name. Right? Proper name. You'd imagine that the other character would as well. So you got Lazarus, you think the other character would as well. But he doesn't. Abraham gets one. But this rich man doesn't. So we have a named character and a nameless character. And this distinction is a deliberate one by Jesus. 
Consider that the rock upon which this man built his life was money. It was his highest good. It was his summum bunum. It was his identity. And Jesus paints a bold contrast between him and this poor man. Just look at verses 20 through 21. We are told, I want to paint this picture a little bit for you as Jesus paints it. We are told that Lazarus is lying down at this rich man's gate. The word for lie down suggests that he was too ill to move and likely crippled. In other words, he was there for likely a duration of time. Dogs lick this man's sores. And if you're thinking this is a nice image, like they, the dogs came to comfort him, an image of a, you know, a black lab or golden retriever coming by, that is not what Jesus was imagining. Jesus had in mind wild dogs that would infect his sores, at the very least, leave him ceremonially unclean as a Jewish person. Later, rabbis would have described Lazarus' life as no life at all. These rabbis had a saying that three situations resulted in no life. I was reading this earlier this week. Three situations resulted in no life for a Jewish person. One, anyone who depended on food for another person's table. Two, anyone ruled by his wife. Interesting. <laughs> three, anyone whose body was full of sores. Lazarus had two out of three. He was twice dead. A man more than dead. Jesus is painting a stark picture for us. On the other hand, rich man. This rich man lived, lived it up in luxury. This gate at which Lazarus lay, the word for gate, pulon, was used almost entirely for entrances to cities, entrances to gates, sorry, entrances to temples, entrances to palaces. We're talking ornate, huge, jeweled kind of gates. In other words, this man didn't live in you know, a 1,500 square foot, two bedroom condominium. This was a mansion this man lived in. Perhaps the most important brush stroke Jesus makes is in verse 24. That while in hell, the rich man admits that he knows who Lazarus is. He knew who he was in his life. He says, send Lazarus. Right? Verse 24. So a little detail there, but on earth, he was keenly aware of this sickly man lying at his gate. It's not often people ask a bum's name, is it? You can almost imagine him hearing him say to, his, to one of his servants, Who is that wretched man? Who's that, who's that man lying down at my gate every time I walk past? Here's, here's the point. Here's what's important to understand. This isn't an entrance of, of not volunteering you know, one night at a soup kitchen when you said you would. It's not a, a situation in which you had an opportunity to buy someone a meal who was in need and you didn't do it. This is a deliberate, repeated, lifelong neglect of someone suffering literally outside one's front door. He trusted his life to money. He built his life on it. The rich man says in verse 25, had received his good things. Do you notice that? Do you notice the past tense? Had. Money and possessions form the basis of this man's identity. And now that these things are gone, there's no him left. In a sense, there's no him left. 
He has no proper name. He is either a rich man or he is nothing. Because he's built his whole life on that. I want to make a quick point here. I want to make the point that, important point, it's not that possessing money is in itself sinful. Let me make that very clear. But as one of my favorite pastors, uh, Tim Keller, likes to say, sin is often taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Taking something that's good that God created and making it an ultimate thing in our life. Raising it to that position. What about you and I for tombstones? It's easy to think about what we like in our tombstone in the future. But what about the rearview mirror? Should should, Should we die and stand alongside the unfortunate man in this parable? What would be revealed on our eternal tombstone? you have a good job and a nice car with some money that's fine but if you make that your ultimate thing then your tombstone would read the rich man you may like to, to say when, when just talking a lot or sharing your feelings you may always say I'm just being honest even if it's hurtful I'm just being honest I'm just being honest but if just being honest becomes your ultimate thing Gives you freedom to say whatever you want your whole life. That becomes an ultimate thing. Your tombstone might read, a tongue-lashing woman. You might spend time taking care of yourself and your needs. But if taking care of yourself and your needs becomes an ultimate thing about your life, it's idolatry. Your tombstone might read, lived for self. You might find satisfaction in a good thing, helping others which is great to help others. But if helping others becomes your ultimate, that's how you find your satisfaction, your all in all. That becomes your ultimate, your tombstone, where you needed others to need me. See, friends, God uses the reality of hell to wake us up and lovingly urge us to be honest with ourselves. Do you see that? I know, this is radical. We say that God is good. Could he be this good to even use hell? The reason why I'm spending most of our time on this first point is that none of us wants to think about ourselves and hell in the same sentence. Right? We don't want to go there. I poured over a bunch of uh, surveys as to the existence of hell this last week. And I also find out that 90% of surveys seem to be conducted in the United States. <laughs> it's not like, no, it looks like, like South Africa, Great Britain. And one truth for, came from this is we need more surveys there. <laughs> but I also found out that every survey taken in the United States, at least um, 45% of the people surveyed, and as high as 61% in other surveys, say that hell exists. 45, somewhere between 45 and 61% of people say that a hell exists. But less than 1% said they think they're going. Understandable. Why would you want to go? I also came across this book uh, written by a cardiologist from the University of Tennessee in the States. And in the course of, of uh, this man's ER work, emergency room work, Dr. Maurice Rawlings and his colleagues interviewed more than 300 people who claimed to have a type of near-death experience. And what made his 
particular research a bit unique is that the interviews weren't conducted months or years later, but immediately after people said these things allegedly occurred. Nearly 50% of them reported encountering images of fire, of tormented and tormenting creatures, and other kinds of sights hailing from a place other than heaven. In follow-up interviews much later, many of these same people changed their stories, apparently unwilling to admit to their families, maybe even to themselves, that they had caught a glimpse of something like what the Bible calls hell. Dr. Rawlings concludes, he says this, just listening to these patients have changed my life. Changed my life. There is a life after death, and if I don't know where I'm going, it is not safe to die. Now you may or may not believe or hold credence to the recounting of these near-death experiences, but what's more telling for our purposes is why half of them saw something of hell, and so many of those half convinced themselves otherwise months later. Why did they convince themselves otherwise? My theory is this. It's a simple theory, but I think it's because few want to honestly look at their present eternal condition. Few want to be honest with themselves about where they might stand eternally. Boy, throw me there and there too. That's a hard thing to look at, even as a Christian. As a Christian, you say, well, I don't need to think about that. I never need to think about that. But the Apostle Paul, in a letter to one of his churches, asks each person, even the Christians, to test themselves to see if they are in the faith. He asks them to test themselves. 2 Corinthians 13, you can look it up later. Test themselves. See if they're in the faith. He says it even to Christians. And it's a win-win situation, even if you feel very certain you're going to heaven. Because if you test yourself, and you realize you are in the faith, you have trusted your life to Jesus Christ, then great, you have more confidence. But if you test yourself and realize you really haven't, that you've trusted your life to something other than Jesus, you have an opportunity to ask for forgiveness. And turn your life around. Opportunity for the grace of Jesus to come into your life. That's a win-win. You see that? It's important for us to think about this issue. It's for our good that Jesus talks about hell so much. Hell is good also, second reason hell is good. Hell is good because it quenches an innate thirst for justice, an inward thirst for justice. The Bible says in Genesis 1.27 that we are all made in God's image. And so we find in all of us God's great qualities to a lesser degree as human beings. And they're a bit roughed up by sin as well. They're very roughed up by sin. God cares about justice and being just. And so there is something innate in us, being made in God's image, that longs to see justice come to fruition. To justice to come about in places of injustice and wickedness. We see this in this parable, right? Imagine if Jesus had told this parable and Lazarus had gone to hell and the rich man to heaven. Right? What if the poor guy went to hell and the rich man to heaven? Something about our sensibilities would perk up and claim that is unjust. We see the thirst for justice. 
We see it and, and why people, someone went to great lengths to film the, the hanging of Saddam Hussein and then put it online. It was one of the most watched videos, online videos in history because people have this desire. It might be a little weird. People have a desire to see justice. It's why we all grieve when a four-year-old boy in West Bay was killed by gunfire earlier this year. We see justice and why, whether you agree with it or not, why so many people after that occurred started talking about the death penalty days and months after. You may not agree with it, but they talk about it because of a thirst for justice that's in all of us. It's why even in, in prison, even criminals seek out and often hurt, kill even, those convicted of hurting children. Right? Even hardened convicts sense the need for justice to be done towards those who hurt or violate helpless children. It's something in all of us that God has put in there. Friends, hell is God's final grave for all wickedness and injustice. Hell is God's final resting place for all wickedness and injustice. Here's another thing about hell. Hell actually frees us up. It's pretty radical. Hell, the idea of hell, the truth of hell, frees you and I up to forgive while an all-knowing God takes care of dealing out justice. Actually frees us up to forgive, to extend mercy to people because God is taking care of ultimate justice. This past week I reread this book uh, called Night by Elie Wiesel. Wiesel won the Nobel Peace Prize for this book. Uh, was a Hungarian Jewish teenager when he and his family were deported to Auschwitz concentration camp in Germany during World War II as a man who knew injustice well he lost his mother, his sister watched his father die arguably the most, the most critical portion of the book is after he's just arrived at Auschwitz and he's watched even kids go into the furnace and his long night, he calls it, begins. That's the title of his book. A night which he claimed he saw his God murdered. Wiesel visited my university uh, years back and I had a chance to interact with him in a small classroom setting. Very thankful for that opportunity. And I asked him about his feelings that God was murdered. Has that changed? And he said, yes, it has indeed changed. I do believe God's alive. He's a merciful God. When someone heard him say he was a merciful God, they followed up with another question. Does that mean you don't or, or maybe no longer believe in the idea of hell? The Jewish or biblical idea of hell. What's interesting to me was his response. It's always stuck with me. I don't have this exactly. But he said this. He said, quite the opposite. I believe in it all the more. I cannot know the heart of each soldier in a concentration camp, whether it's good or, or absolutely vile. And there were injustices done. Furthermore, though, the atrocious acts done in the name of justice there in those concentration camps that people said this was a just thing being done showed me that only one being, one being is capable of meeting out justice. But what that does is it frees human beings to focus on mercy. It frees human beings to focus on mercy. What Vizel was doing was really just paraphrasing what Paul says in Romans 12. 
19 through 20. It says this, Dear friends, never avenge yourselves. Leave that to God. For it is written, I will take vengeance. I will repay those who deserve it, says the Lord. Instead, do what the scriptures say. If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. We extend mercy, extend forgiveness, praying that God would use that to change hearts, possibly even their eternal destiny. That's our job. That's our role as finite human beings. Let God take care of the rest. Hell is a gift to the living. As it frees us from having to carry around the burdensome weight of revenge. Have you ever felt that? That feeling, gosh, that group, that country, that, that evil dictator, that whatever, that, that person in my life, oh. Hell is a gift to the living. It frees us from having to carry around that burden of revenge while giving us the choice of mercy. See that? So we can rest content in our lives. Content. Knowing that God has a place called hell to do his part for ultimate justice. Third reason why hell can actually be good to think about. Hell is good because it reminds us of God's great love. I know that sounds counterintuitive. Verses 27 through 31. Read that with me if you would. Jesus said, And I beg you, Father, to send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so they may be warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. After the rich man uh, objects, he says in verse 31, Moses re- or sorry, Abraham repeats, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. As a great scholar, N.T. Wright, uh, talked about as I read this week, Jesus wasn't the first to tell of this reversal of wealth and poverty in the afterlife, that things were switched around in the afterlife. Stories like this were so known in the ancient Near East that we can tell now that Jesus changed the typical ending to the story. The, the ending we'd expect, that people hearing the story would expect. He changed it. Turned the tables. In the typical story, when someone asks permission to send a message from the dead back to people who are alive, that request is granted. Permission is granted. Here, it is not. Richmond has a request to go back, send a message. It's denied. Why? Jesus is making a point that God has already provided everything we need to avoid hell. We know this throughout Jesus' ministry. People did miracles. Jesus walked on water. He rose people from the dead. Publicly in some of these cases. But people still didn't believe in him. God's provided everything we need to avoid hell. Verse 31. And they don't hear Moses and the prophets. They won't believe. Where have we heard this before? They don't hear Moses and the prophets. Where have we heard Moses and the prophets? Hmm. If, if your answer is last week, Ryan, in your sermon, that stirred our souls. Yes, that's the answer. We heard it last week. Earlier, chapter 16, 
Verse 16, the law and the prophets were up until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. Jesus is intentionally pointing back there. That God has given us his word, all of which points towards, even the Old Testament, points towards Jesus as the great rescuer. We talked about that last week. And Jesus is kind of reminding them again here. I love how God's word comes together. But he's reminding them that again here. God has provided everything we need. His word. But he also provided himself. Jesus Christ, the God-man. Fully God, fully man, provided himself. Look at verse 26, just for a minute. Abraham, kind of God's agent here, says this. And besides all this, between us and you, you, rich man, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able to, and none may cross from there to us. This very Jesus, the God-man, endured hell on our behalf in order to bridge the chasm between us and God. Yeah, in hell there's no way from that place of darkness to God. But there's a chasm in this life. And some of us stand on the other side of the chasm. And Jesus endured hell to bridge that gap. Um, very good author and New Testament theologian, scholar, R.C. Sproul says this. I should, I should mention this before I read this quote, that the cross was an awful thing, if nothing else from the physical suffering of it. Jesus dying on the cross, the physical suffering on it was excruciating. That's where the word excruciating comes from. Excruciate, crucify. But that wasn't the worst of it. R.C. Sproul says this, Thousands of people have died on crosses, and others have had even more painful, excruciating deaths than that. But only one, only one received the full measure of the curse of God while on a cross. And because of that, I wonder whether Jesus was even aware of the nails and thorns. On the cross, he was in hell, totally without the grace and presence of God. He became a curse for us so that one day we'll be able to see the face of God. You may reply, like I once did, that's unfair. I never asked anyone to go through this torture, this hell for me. And you're right. You may never have. I never did either. Frankly, I, I was far too prideful. I was sure that I was good enough. But this is a perfect God. God of all righteousness, of all justice. So Jesus, loving his Father, and his Father so loving us, endured hell anyway, even though we didn't ask. Saying before he died, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus, he's awesome. Hell is good because it reminds us of God's great love. It was a hell that Jesus endured for us. Thinking about hell, meditating on it might inspire anger. Maybe in you, the anger that it's preached, even applied to our lives. It might make you angry that God goes too far in ultimate justice. It might inspire anger that you never asked 
for the hell Jesus endured on the cross. Or, or it can inspire honesty about what you've built your life on. It can inspire contentment that God and His justice will ultimately make all things right. It can inspire thanksgiving that Jesus would endure hell so you can eternally enjoy heaven with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, it's crazy, it's bold, it's radical to say that even in something as controversial, as hard, as even frightful as hell, you show your goodness. Lord, you are so good that you even use that to your glory. You, you use even that to wake us up in our present lives. Lord, I pray this morning that you would do the hard work in our lives. Of sometime this week, sometime today, think about hell. Yeah, it's hard. But God, so that we could be honest with ourselves about our present condition, what we've built our lives on, what our eternal tombstone would read now, so that we might see how great you are that one day you will put all things right in your justice. Satisfy that thirst of justice that's within, that's within us. Lord, and you're so good that Jesus, you would send Jesus to endure hell on our behalf to bridge that chasm between us and God. Jesus, may we be thankful. That's us in your name. Amen.